I'm Mo Lotman, and you're listening to the Techno Skeptic Podcast. My guest today is Narayan Liebenson. She's a guiding teacher at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. She's been teaching for over 30 years in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition and has studied and given talks all over the world. She's the author of Life as Meditation. And you can find many of her talks online at dharmasee.org. Narayan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure. You often lead beginning meditation classes, which I know because I've been to many of them, mm-hmm. and you're very experienced in explaining the basics to newcomers. And this is a little bit different because I'm asking you to use the wisdom of Buddhist practice to shed light on something that is maybe not necessarily related to Buddhism mm-hmm. to listeners who may not know anything about meditation or about mindfulness or about Buddhism. So first, I just want to acknowledge your generosity in doing that. Thank you for stepping a little outside the (laughs) the normal wheelhouse there. Um, And and first, just so everyone can feel welcome, do you have to be Buddhist to practice mindfulness or meditation? (laughs) You do not have to be Buddhist to practice meditation. If mindfulness itself is taken out of what we call the Eightfold Noble Path, which means that ethics aren't valued as much as attentiveness, and wisdom and intention and understanding aren't valued, then isolating mindfulness in that way is not always so great. But that said, you know, I am really positive that the Buddha did not want anybody to be a Buddhist or to practice Buddhism because the idea is to be inwardly free and to be able to express wisdom and compassion wherever we are and whomever we're with. Mm -hmm. At the centers that I teach, people come from all different paths of life and practice other forms of religion and come to Buddhist meditation centers. And sometimes keep with their other religions. Exactly, yeah. exactly. No, we have nuns and priests and rabbis and... Atheists. And athe- uh, many atheists, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody is welcome. Everyone is included because you can practice whatever else you're doing and benefit from meditation. So that's a great segue because I want to ask you... What are the benefits of meditation for those who don't know? Yeah. Well, you're talking to someone who has been at this in a dedicated and committed way for for most of my life. And I cannot imagine a life without meditation because it's a way to train your mind so that you're steady and stable in whatever situation you find yourself in. So... There's a kind of basic level of sanity that we can sometimes lose sight of when we're being lost or caught in our thoughts or in our minds, when we are preoccupied or lost in a self-centered bubble. You know, meditation kind of pops that bubble. Awareness pops that bubble so that we can be connected with ourselves, with our bodies, with our hearts, and so that we can be more connected with other people. Right. Yeah. So that's just a tiny. Of course, we yeah we can't explain <laughs> it's everything. It's huge in and, terms of benefits. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's and only you, beneficial. It's only beneficial. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So what is the loss when you don't have attentiveness? Oh. What, what don't you have access to without the attention? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, if you don't have attention, you're pretty much lost in imaginary worlds because one doesn't even know what is going on. You know, if we're not attentive, we're each of us walking around in our own little world. And we kind of think we know what somebody else's world is, but we really don't because we're preoccupied and lost in our own. So being attentive allows for a lightness of being. It actually allows for an inner joy because we're aware instead of caught in. You know, we're conscious instead of being driven by the unconscious or instead of being pushed around and obeying our conditioning. Yeah. Because we don't have the understanding of what our unconscious is directing us to do. Is that Yes, part that's of it? exactly it. Yes. So instead of that, we are really in obedience to everything that we have learned in the past, which certainly can help, but is different than being fresh and alive and awake and connected right here and now. You know, just speaking with each other right now, if you were lost in your head and if I was lost in my head, we wouldn't really be able to have a connected conversation. Right. Yeah. So it's the same with oneself. You can't really have a connected conversation even with yourself if you are lost in your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any kind of uh, example from maybe from your own life or some something you've seen to illustrate this? Mm. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of an example from when I was a child. That's great. And I was with my family and I was at a castle, Gillette Castle in Connecticut. Okay. Yeah. And um, I was at the bottom of the castle and all of a sudden I found myself at the top of the castle. And I thought to myself, how did I get here? You know, there were many steps along the way from the bottom to the top. Right. But I wasn't aware. I wasn't present. I was completely lost in this daydream. And I thought, wow, anything could have happened. You know, I was completely gone. I was completely lost. And is this a good way to live? You know, is this a wise way to live? Is it an alive way to live? I'm not sure I had all those thoughts when I was a child. I was going to say yeah. that's pretty advanced <laughs> thinking for a, a toddler but or I, however I, old. <laughs> but I knew something was wrong. Okay. You know, I knew something was So off. you sensed a loss there somehow. Yes, I sensed a loss because I wasn't alive within my life. I'm going to talk about your book just very briefly. So Life as Meditation. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Okay. It's very cute. Just to describe <laughs> it for the listeners. It's a series of cartoons, drawings. 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 They're yeah. very cute. And each page has a simple one sentence message. And the essential message is do one thing at a time mm -hmm. and give it your full attention. Exactly. Um, exactly. And um, be with that activity completely, fully. Yeah. It occurs to me, and so obviously this is a podcast about technology, and mm -hmm. um, it occurs to me that the internet is sort of designed with the opposite intention <laughs> <laughs> to uh, allow you to do as many things as possibly imaginable, yeah, yeah, often yeah. quite at the same time. Right. And we know Which, it's... Which, of course, science is, is saying doesn't even work anymore. You know? Right. I mean, in the beginning with this kind of multiple tasking kind of idea, people really thought that they could do it. And now even scientists are saying it just not isn't the way the brain works. Right, you exactly. You really can do more than one thing at a time. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The Buddha was right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Scientists are catching up. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. So I, that's what I was going to ask you is if yeah. you were 
does it concern you at all that impulse that sometimes we get pulled into with the internet or with our devices right i think that um, what i get most concerned about is its addictive quality it does seem to have a captivating addictive quality for many, many people, where people don't even know that they're doing it, you know, because especially being on their phones, because here at the center, this is a technology free building. Which I'm violating right now. Sorry, (laughs) thank you. Well, wisdom and everything. This is a good use of technology. But in general, to have places where we turn everything off, so that we can look deeply into our own hearts, into our own psyches. This is vital in a world in which more and more use of devices is occurring. You know, I just came back from Cuba. I was teaching in Cuba. And Cuba is not um, hooked up in the way that we are at all. Yeah, far and few between in terms of being able to use the internet, Um, Some people have phones, but not the way most countries have phones. Right. And what struck me is that I would go into a situation, a restaurant or being on the street or hotel or something like that, and people would actually be talking with one another and looking at each other in the eye. And that's what seems to happen now is that even with, you know, with kids or younger people, people don't have the training to look someone right in the eye. There seems to be more fear, which is not helpful in terms of making people into the other. Right. Yeah. That fear is just going to be problematic and not connecting. So that's something that I've noticed. But I've noticed here at the center that even though people who come here are sincere and they read the signs and they probably want to put their devices down as well, unconsciously I notice that it seems that it's really hard to right. do that. This yeah. is the hands come out and the yeah. <laughs> I, it's it's perfect that you brought this up because I was actually going to ask you about this exact thing. Oh. So you have signs in the center. You have signs actually even outside the front door. Yes, um, saying mm-hmm. that people should refrain from turning on their electronic devices, and there's quite a few of them. It's I would say it's fair to say you should see one of these signs if you come in here. It would be difficult not to. Yeah. Well, we think about it should be like an orange neon as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Flashing on and off. But that, you know, would be problematic <laughs> with the no technology. Yeah. Catch 22 there. Exactly. Something I've noticed, it seems as though even though you have those signs that there's been an encroachment, I would argue even within the last few years, I'm noticing something different. Here. Uh, here okay. at the center. That's helpful to um, know. <laughs> about, about people and their technology use in the center. Now, my understanding is one doesn't use these devices at all in the center. Right. Um, I've noticed a lot of people have read the signs and taken it to mean while in the meditation hall, don't use mm. your device, but they might still use it in the hallway as they're mm-hmm. getting ready to leave and things right. like that. Right, right, um, right, yeah. And then I did actually notice one uh, recent time that someone started using their device in the meditation hall in between a sitting and a talk. Mm. And I respectfully said something to this gentleman. Wonderful. I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I was surprised at his reaction, which was a little testy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I'm just curious if you have yeah. noticed this at all. Yeah. Uh, I think whenever something is taken away from someone, that can be the reaction of testiness or, you know, and that's the addiction thing. Right. When you have to use it or you feel like you're dependent on it and someone is asking you not to, right. you can feel testy. You can feel aversive. You know, you can feel like a lot of different things like that person is judging you or not even that. You just want to do it. Right. You know, because it, it has a has a compelling force. Right. Right. So So I have I have noticed this too. I mean, I'm happy to hear what you're saying because you're in a different position than me, but I feel very clear that we have to continue to move in the direction of of asking people to turn off their devices when we see and this is where everybody kind of has to cooperate right you know i mean so that's why i appreciate you doing it oh it's yeah. my pleasure yeah but you talk about uh i think in in some of the signs about this being a sanctuary exactly so maybe could you explain what you mean by that in this context right yes well these days there's not that many places where you can go where it's actually encouraged to turn your devices off and simply be with yourself and be with other people. And so to have a situation where you know that even if your boss is after you, you know, you cannot respond is really a very, very precious thing. And sanctuary means all sorts of different things. But one thing it means here is that we offer a space of silence. You know, we really encourage outer silence so that you can find inner silence and then be able to communicate in a more thoughtful way instead of in a reactive way or a habituated or patterned way. Right. Yeah. And what is the value of that, would you say, in the general world? Well, you know, these days it's just getting so much noisier and so much more reactive. And I hear a lot about social media. I'm not actually on social media I myself. Expect that, <laughs> <laughs> but well, sometimes I I feel like I should, so right. I, I know more what's going on. But I read plenty about social media, and um, not to say that it's all wrong or it's all bad, and that there's nothing positive about it, because I know that there can be, but. There is also a way in which people seem to not always be able to take responsibility for what they're saying. Yeah. So they're saying things that it goes, throws out there. It has its impact. It hurts or it's, it affects people in a certain way. There's no um, seeing of that because you're not, you're not, you don't have the voice to help you. You don't have the body to help you to see, ah, oh, you know, that actually really hurts somebody. The other person. Exactly. Right. Exactly. To see their reaction. That's it. That's it. And I also think that there's a way when you're on the computer and and phone and all that stuff that you can, you don't have to be, but you can be somewhat disembodied. And I think, you know, we all have to use these things these days. I certainly do. But to practice being embodied while you are using your phone or using the internet or whatever it might be is really, really different than getting lost in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is great. You're actually anticipating questions I was going to ask you. (laughs) The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. 
we've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now, back to the show. Years ago, when I taught in Russia, um, in the back of the hall, and this was the very first time I saw this, someone was texting on their phone. And this was before texting was popular and everybody texts. And I noticed it, and I was a guest there, so I, I couldn't say anything to this particular person. It actually would have been quite rude for me to say it. But I was, I was really aware of it and aware that this cannot happen again, right. you know? And I was thinking afterwards, you know, what is he texting? I am being present right now. You know, I am meditating right now. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. If we can back up a little bit and broaden the time frame of you've been teaching for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming before that you were also practicing. Yes. So mm -hmm. for, I imagine for also a long time. Yes. So you've, you've seen, I would think, a, a wide variety of changes in terms of technology use over over the years yes as you've practiced yes and so i'm just wondering if there's something that you've noticed not just you know yesterday or this year but mm -hmm. over the broad scale of your career studying and teaching mm. in terms of whether there's any relationship between how people are coming to you what the beginners are like mm. what their mm -hmm. beginning mm -hmm. skill sets are. Mm -hmm. Has mm -hmm. that changed at all? Or You know, it's a curious thing. And I was just speaking with someone about this the other day. I don't know if it's because meditation is more popular and it's more in the culture than it used to be right. or not. Um, when I began, this was completely out there right. to, to meditate <laughs> or to go on a silent retreat or to spend time in silence or to contemplate. Right. You know, you had to be a monk or a nun. You, um, it was all very, very odd right. of a thing to do. Right. And now it's quite in the, in the general culture. Yeah. Um, what I notice is that people come with a little bit more wherewithal than they used to. Okay. Yeah. Can you years describe ago, that? Well, years ago, people would come in off the streets knowing nothing about meditation. Now people know a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not so good because, you know, there's a lot of beliefs about meditation that aren't really true. Right. Like you're never supposed to think or something like that. Okay. You know? <laughs> and if you're thinking, it's a problem. And, right. You know, that whole thing. But also, there is more of a capacity. This kind of rebuts the whole technology thing that we're talking about. Okay. Because people seem to have more of a capacity to stay quiet. I've noticed that even with new people, there used to be a lot of restlessness and moving around. And over the years, it's become less so. Oh, that's really fascinating. I know. I don't know how to put it together with what you and I are talking about. But it's certainly positive. That's yeah. great. So yeah. can you speculate on why that might be? The only thing I can speculate on is that people really need this. They really want it. A lot of people are really suffering and they're looking for something. Right. So 
perhaps the sincerity of really listening to the instructions, you know, which are to keep your body still and relax and, right. and all of that. And it's also possible that because mindfulness is so much in the culture, Right. Like mindfulness-based stress right. reduction, yeah. that it's touched a lot of people in a positive way. And so there's a little bit of understanding when they come in. So I don't know. I mean, people are suffering maybe more than ever. But in terms of the stillness in the hall, a number of years, you know, I teach long retreats as well. And a number of years ago, I I remember registering this, like maybe five or six years ago, registering it, the first day would begin when everybody's really restless and sleepy and all of this. And it was quieter. And I thought, what's going on? And then it just, it just continued to happen, hmm. that there was more silence. So I don't know. I guess perhaps a thought is coming to me <laughs> that in dropping the technology, there's some um, peacefulness, yeah. that it's so agitating to be so overly connected to technology that when you have a chance to drop it, right? yeah, um, there might be some resistance to that, but there's also perhaps a great relief. And even though it's hard to look at oneself, at the same time, it's beautiful and it's deep and it's peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. It leads to greater peace to face yourself as you are without anything in the way. You know, and also people get themselves in trouble with, in trouble with these things too, you know, with the, the back and forth and needing contact and all of that. So not needing it, you know, being in an environment where you're being told you are enough, you know, you don't need to depend on something coming towards you to feel like enough. You can touch your inner resources and know that you actually are enough as you are. Yeah. That leads me into asking you about the hungry ghost. Uh, I love that concept. Right? Can you explain that to people? <laughs> yeah. Um, this has to do with Buddhist cosmology, where there is this idea of different dimensions of being. And one of those dimensions of being is what's called this image of the hungry ghost. And a good way to think about it is just whenever you have what's called hungry ghost mind. It's the image of somebody who is very big, you know, has a really, really big stomach and a very, very tiny mouth. So that person is trying to take in enough nourishment to feed and nourish this bigger body, but is not able to because of the mouth being so small that it's not possible to take in the nourishment. So it's this always, this sense of always craving, always wanting, always having to have, and this urgency, because of course we do need to nourish ourselves. And of course, the only way to move through hungry ghost mind is to rest and relax and steady yourself within yourself. Do you see a link between the concept of the hungry ghost and addiction? I think it's exactly what addiction is. Yeah. Yes, definitely, definitely. This um, error of thinking that I will get enough nourishment. It's just not happening, but I will with my next, you know, hit of this or that. Right. Yeah. Not recognizing that we're never going to find it outside of ourselves. That that old cliche of happiness lies within is actually true. 
Yeah. It is not just a cliche. It's just that we have to do the work of uncovering it and discovering it and then living it with grace and dignity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you see a relationship there between mm-hmm. the addiction and these devices and worry that it might hinder people's access to this wisdom? I do. I do. Although maybe the upside of it is um, that for some people, at least the recognition that it's not ultimately satisfying. Mm -hmm. So kind of, you know, get thee to a convent kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've got to go to the meditation center because I, I kind of can't pull this off because of the feeling of having to have. And so then coming into an arena where people are seeing things in a different way and you're being supported in this different way of right. seeing. Yeah. Why do you suppose that meditation and mindfulness are so currently in vogue, at least popularly? I don't know if people are actually doing it or if they're just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's certainly far, far more in the public consciousness lately. And why, why do you suppose that is? Yeah. I don't really know. I, you know, things always come about because of conditions coming together. So I don't know. I do think that the practice of, you know, the Buddhist teachings are really, really good for our time period because of their inclusivity, you know, because you can do whatever else you're doing and take up the practice. And then that will lead you to a greater depth of wisdom and compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that freedom in it, the way most of us teach it anyway, is is positive for this particular time period that we live in. Yeah. I like when you say this particular time period because it reinforces the idea that there will be another time period. <laughs> 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 um, this, what does mindfulness or meditation offer people that have compulsive behaviors? Mm. Yeah. That can help them. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that it's a gradual training um, in terms of looking at one's habits and patterns. And if you're willing to stay aware of a habit, it begins to shift and change and dissolve in the light of awareness. You know, it takes a lot of patience. And it takes a lot of care and it takes a lot of, you know, support and guidance. Mm -hmm. But definitely it starts to break up that sense of urgency or, as I said before, having to have. Right. Because of a greater degree of peacefulness within yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's really just lawful that if you're addicted in some way, it's because you don't feel full within yourself. You feel impoverished. Hungry ghost mind is a is a sense right. of impoverishment, so you're always having to look outside of yourself for for peace. Whereas meditation really shows you what is really so within you. You know, your your whatever we call it Buddha nature, but whatever it might be, original nature, sanity nature. You know, sanity. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Sanity's good. Do you have any strategies for people that are at least aware, which is already the first step, I guess, of anxiousness created by their tech use or by being, say, too connected or too available? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think it's important to renounce and put oneself on a diet, you know, because um, to turn it off at times, to work with when eating, just eat. 
and not be on your device while you're eating, for instance, or while you're talking to someone. Obviously, practicing when you're talking with someone, which maybe people are a little bit better about now, I'm not sure. But, you know, when you go out to a, um, a restaurant or something and people are not talking to one another, yeah, they're, right. they're talking to their devices. And so really, really making that vow or that intention, I think, is important. Because that's what it comes from. You have to have the resolve to do it. Right. And you have to understand that it's a really positive thing to do, that it's not renunciation for the sake of renunciation. Right. It's renunciation of anxiety. You know, it's renunciation of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. This is yeah. this kind It's not of, deprivation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of gets to the kernel of the difficulties around changing behavior. Because when, if there has to be an intention around it to begin with mm-hmm. you would have to have understanding before you had the intention mm-hmm. i think certainly with smart devices it's almost working against yeah. your understanding because Definitely. it's distracting you before you could have the understanding exactly exactly is yeah. there a way to stop that that mental loop in yeah a way? yes this is where i believe in sitting meditation and i also think you know my tradition um really really believes in retreats as well where you're spending certain amounts of time completely on your own, just being with yourself and being with your own life and your own mind. And that, you know, you get a little taste of something. You know, you know, you, know you've been yeah. coming, right? You get a little taste of something that's unfamiliar and yet unbelievably familiar. You know, this intimacy with life and with something within you that um, has always been there, but you've missed it. You've just kind of kind of coasted over it. Right. And so meditation helps us come in contact with this. And then right. that inspires to form the intention or the vow. Right. Yeah. So get mm-hmm. thee to a meditation hall is, is, the, is, <laughs> kind is, is of. the gist. Um. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know about tricks or strategies or, you know, I kind of really just believe in, in um, hanging out with yourself long enough to understand things more deeply. That's a great place to stop. Okay. Thank you so much, Narayan. Oh, it's you're so pleasure. welcome. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. One last thing before we go. I'd like to ask listeners to please go to whatever podcast app you use and put a review there for the Technoskeptic Magazine podcast. When the Technoskeptic switched from WordPress to Substack, our podcast feed also changed, so all our previous reviews went away. We really appreciate it if you help us catch back up to where we were and leave us a nice review. Thanks.